That meant that at the time, Israel was the most powerful nation on earth. The world's lone superpower. Solomon ruled really over a global empire. He built alliances and entered into trade agreements with foreign kings that brought unprecedented wealth to Israel. He even built a navy and a merchant marine. He opened up Israel to world markets, and in the process, he became famous. He spread his fame and the glory of the Lord around the world. His reputation extended to the ends of the earth. David had won battles and had established a dynasty. Solomon took it to the next level. He expanded the kingdom, and God used him to make Israel great. Tonight, we're going to scan chapters 1 through 11 and the reign of King Solomon. Verse 1 opens. Now, King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him, but he could not get warm. The old boy had some circulatory problems, some iron poor blood. And so the doctors prescribed him a special comforter to go on his bed. And I'm not talking a blanket here. I'm talking a beauty. Verses 2 through 4 tell us that they recruited a gorgeous young girl named Abishag to lay next to him at night to keep David warm. On cold, chilly nights in my house, I always roll over and whisper to my wife, Kathy, please be my Abishag. It's a great line. <laughs> and it usually works. Verse 4 tells us in David's case, the relationship didn't get sexual. David was too old for that. He was having a hard time just keeping his motor running anyway. And Abishag was just there to keep the king warm and to sort of serve as his personal nurse. I'm sure that David wished that he had had an Abishag kind of relationship with Bathsheba. For ever since his affair, his sin with Bathsheba and the cover-up that occurred, he's had problems with his own family. You remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, after the sin with Bathsheba, God warned David, the sword shall never depart from your house. I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. It happened with Absalom. A revolt erupted, and now it's happening again with Absalom's younger brother, Adonijah. Verses 5 and 6 tell us, Then Adonijah, the son of Hagith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, Why have you done so? Again, David failed to discipline his kids. This was a recurring problem with David. He was able to lead a nation, but David failed to guide his own household. And his lack of leadership at home elicited power plays and rebellious attitudes and defiant acts among his kids. You know, I believe that David's sin with Bathsheba paralyzed him as a parent. 
I believe he was so overcome with guilt over his own sin that afterwards he couldn't muster the moral backbone to punish the sin in his kids, especially when it was the same kind of sin. This is how you create a permissive parent. A permissive parent is a parent who can never overcome their own sin and gain the backbone to discipline their kids. Hey, we need to receive God's forgiveness for a lot of reasons. Forgiveness is critical to our mental health, to our peace of mind, certainly to our eternal destiny and our relationship with God. But God's pardon is also vital to a parent. Forgiveness allows us to start over. If I'm a new creation in Christ, I'm no longer a hypocrite for disciplining my kids for sins that I may have committed. To be an effective parent, you've got to get over your past. Who you were is not who you are. And you want your kids to be like who you are, not who you were. Adonijah recruits the help of General Joab and Abiathar the priest. But most of David's men refused to join his coup. In fact, Nathan the prophet knows the king has promised the reign to Bathsheba's son Solomon. Solomon is to be his successor. And so Nathan and Bathsheba, they go to David to get the king to confirm his choice of Solomon. And we're told in verses 29 and 30, And the king took an oath and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So I certainly will do this day. David orders Solomon to ride his royal mule to Gihon. And there Zadok the priest and the prophet Nathan anoint Solomon as king. After the coronation, they blow a trumpet and the people of Jerusalem all shout together, Long live King Solomon. Verse 40 tells us that the shout was so loud, the earth seemed to split with their sound. Sounded like an earthquake. And the new king, Solomon, returns to the palace and he takes his place on the throne. Now, news of all of this reaches Adonijah. His supporters hear of it and fear begins to move through their ranks and his bid for king is instantly doomed. His backers back down and Adonijah fears for his very life. He runs to the temple. He grabs the horns of the altar, which was a plea for mercy. And Solomon agrees to be kind to Adonijah just as long as he submits to David's verdict. First Kings chapter 2 records the deathbed scene where David utters his final words. I love these scenes in the old movies. These deathbed scenes. One of the most famous is in the movie Newt Rockney. When Ronald Reagan plays the star running back for Notre Dame, George Gipp, and Gipp is about to die, he's on his deathbed, and with his dying breath, he tells the coach, Coach! When the team needs to win a big game and when their back is against the wall and they need encouragement, tell them, coach, just win one for the Gipper. (laughs) And a new battle cry, a rallying cry is born for Notre Dame football. Well, 
Here, David utters his last words. And he challenges his son. And I love what the wise old king tells Solomon in verse 2. He says, be strong. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. Solomon was born in the palace. His whole life had been lived out among the perks and privileges and luxuries and conveniences of royalty. Certainly, Solomon had been born with a silver spoon in his mouth. But now it's time for Solomon to grow up, for Solomon to become a man. Every boy wants to be considered a man. But you know, you can tell a boy that he's a man a million times over, and in his heart, he knows that's not enough. Now, ladies, you may have a hard time understanding this This is a guy thing. But guys are going to know what I'm talking about immediately. Every boy knows that manhood is not given. It's not granted. It has to be earned. We have to prove ourselves a man. Most cultures take this fact into consideration in their customs. And they have rites of passage, which take a male from childhood into manhood. There are ways in their culture where a boy can prove himself a man. Certain Indian tribes used to require the boy to go out and slay a bear, canoe a river, brave the elements. This was his way to prove himself a man. And yet, how do you prove yourself a man? It's sad. The sinful test that some men use today. Oh, look at him. He's a real man. He can hold his liquor. Or he loses his virginity to prove himself a man. Or he's willing to fight. Hey, drunkenness and sexual immorality and violence, those things don't prove yourself a man. They just prove you're stupid. Listen to how David tells Solomon that he can prove his manhood. Verse 3. Keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies. And it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Here's the true test of manhood. Are you brave enough to live your life for Jesus Christ? Are you courageous enough to obey God and to follow his ways? It takes a real man or a real woman to go against the flow of this world, to resist temptation, to put God first. How do you prove yourself a man? By keeping the charge of the Lord. David's obituary appears in chapter 2, verse 10 through 12. So David rested with his father's. And was buried in the city of David. The period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron. And in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David. And his kingdom was firmly established. The new king though begins his reign by cleaning house. And when Adonijah seeks David's nurse Abishag to be his wife. 
Solomon realizes that his brother's real intent is to establish for himself a right to the throne. And so Adonijah tries to dupe Solomon. He tries to take Abishag and lay a claim to the throne, but Adonijah is executed by Solomon. Solomon also deals with a few other characters who have ties to Adonijah. Abiathar, the priest, is defrocked of his priesthood, banished to Anathoth, his hometown. Joab hears about Solomon's house cleaning. He knows he's next. And so he seeks refuge in the temple. But Solomon commands Benaiah to go in and to strike him down. And that he does. And he avenges the blood of the two victims of Joab's violence, Abner and Amasa. And the former general Joab, the brutal man, died a brutal death. Another of David's antagonists, Shimei, you know that man that hurled insults at David as he left the city of Jerusalem when Absalom led his revolt? This man Shimei is put under house arrest. And since he cursed David when he left Jerusalem, Shimei is made to remain in the city as a test of his loyalty to Solomon. It's only when Shimei breaks his vow, his promise to remain in the city, that the king has him executed too. All this bloodshed was Solomon's way of cleaning up the messy aftermath of all that had gone on under David. The execution solidified Solomon's hold on the kingdom. Which brings us to chapter 3, verse 1. Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Now, the ancients believed that the best way to ensure peace was to make your enemies your in-laws. And often treaties were sealed with a marriage. And this is one of the reasons Solomon ended up, we'll learn later, with 700 wives and 300 concubines. Imagine guys trying to keep a thousand women happy. His harem was full of political princesses, daughters of neighboring rulers. In verse 5, God comes to Solomon in a dream. And he hands him a blank check. He says, ask. What shall I give you? What if God were to come and hand you a blank check? Hey, make a request. Any request. And I'll see to it that it comes to pass, that it becomes a reality. What would your request be? Gold? Glitz? Girls? What would be your request? At this point in Solomon's life, he's overwhelmed with the new responsibilities of being king. He's just taken over for his dad, David. God has called Solomon to lead God's people. And Solomon feels the weight of this responsibility. And he knows he's inadequate. He knows that he's too young. He's inexperienced. He doesn't really know what to do. And he admits it. And he realizes that more than anything else, he needs wisdom to handle people justly and mercifully. 
Several years ago, we took the kids to see a movie called Blank Check. I don't know if you saw the movie with your kids, but it was about a little boy who stumbled across a gangster's fortune. And he ended up spending all of the gangster's money on his own extravagance and his own entertainment. But in the end, the kid's blank check couldn't buy him what he wanted most. And that was friendship. Solomon wanted wisdom so that he could evaluate situations, so that he could understand people. Solomon knew that it didn't really matter how much money you end up with or how long you live your life or how popular you become. For if you're not successful in your relationships, you're not really a successful person. Only people will live forever. And a true success is successful with people. Solomon prays for wisdom that he might administer the affairs of the people wisely and compassionately. And God was so pleased with Solomon's request that he not only granted him wisdom, he threw in the riches and the long life and the honor, all that he could have asked for but didn't. And 1 Kings 3 is a wonderful proof of Matthew 6, verse 33 where Jesus told us, seek first the kingdom of God in his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Now, in the last half of chapter three, Solomon gets an opportunity to demonstrate the wisdom that he has acquired from the Lord. And he's faced with a difficult case. Solomon is approached by two women. Both are prostitutes. So neither has a good reputation now for morals or for honesty. And these two women were living as roommates. They lived in the same house by themselves. And both had just given birth to baby boys. One of the ladies tells the story. She says that her roommate went to sleep with her baby by her side. And accidentally, she rolled on top of her baby and she suffocated the child. That's why you don't want to bring your baby to bed with you. But here's where her story becomes sinister. The baby, once she realized that she had suffocated her baby, she then went and slipped into her roommate's room and she swapped the dead baby for her roommate's live baby. And the next morning, when the other mother thought that her baby was dead, she panicked, that is, until she examined him and realized that the roommate had made the swap. But you got to understand, this was before dental records and before fingerprints, and there were no baby photos. And the two women lived by themselves. And so no one was there to be an eyewitness. No one could vouch for whose baby this, you know, this child really belonged. This is clearly a case of one person's word against another. What's Solomon to do? What would you have done if you were judge over such a case? Well, here's what Solomon does, and it demonstrates his God-given wisdom. The king asks for a sword, and he orders the living child sliced in two. Give half to one woman and half to the other woman. Split the kid in two. But you know what happens immediately. 
the true mom's compassion and motherly instinct kicks in. And she's the one who steps forward and drops her claim on the boy to save his life. And Solomon has correctly identified the little boy's true mom. Verse 26 tells us, Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, O my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. Here's the real mom for sure. And verse 28 tells us, All Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Everyone recognized God's wisdom in Solomon's decisions. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 19, Solomon's administration is listed for us. And in addition to the regular cabinet post, Solomon divided the land into 12 provinces with a governor over each province and each governor fed the king's household for one month out of the year, sort of their taxation. The last half of chapter 4 lists the extent of Solomon's kingdom. He reigned from the Euphrates in the north all the way to Egypt in the south. Verse 26 mentions the king's cavalry. And when we go to Israel, those that go with us will visit some of Solomon's stables. Verses 29 and 30 tell us, God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. I love that. Solomon ruled with both his head and his heart. Hey, raise your kids with both your head and your heart. Treat your spouse with both your head and your heart. Run your business with both your head and your heart. Whatever it is that you have to rule, rule it with both your head and your heart. That's real wisdom. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Verse 32 tells us, He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Now, the book of Proverbs, which was written by Solomon, contains roughly 750 Proverbs, which means we only have about 25% of Solomon's Proverbs. Of his 1,005 songs, we only have three. Psalm uh, Psalm 72, Psalm 127, and the Song of Solomon. I guess we'll just have to wait till we get to heaven to read the complete works of King Solomon. Look to it, verse 33. Also, he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things and of fish. Apparently, Solomon was a scientist. He was a student of nature, a botanist and a zoologist. Verse 34 says, and men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 5, Solomon and the king of Tyre, just north of Israel, sign a peace treaty. Hiram, the king of Tyre, was a man who had loved David. And he too admired the wisdom of Solomon. In exchange for food, 
Hiram agreed to provide Solomon with cypress trees and cedar wood from Lebanon. And Hiram would supply Solomon with the wood that he would need to build the temple in Solomon's other construction projects. Solomon also gathered laborers to quarry and carry the stones. And in chapter 5, Solomon prepares to build the temple. In chapter 6, the construction begins, and we're told it begins 480 years after Israel exited Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1 is an extremely significant verse when it comes to Old Testament timelines. It sort of lays it out for us. Solomon took over the throne from David in 970 B.C., which dates the exodus from Egypt at 1445 B.C. Now, verse 2 of chapter 6 tells us the temple's dimensions, this wonderful temple, this house for God that Solomon builds. It's 60 cubits long by 20 cubits wide by 30 cubits high. Now, if a cubit is 18 inches, and we're not really sure, it could have been anywhere from 18 to 24 inches, but let's just say 18 inches. That means the temple was 90 feet long by 30 feet wide by 45 feet high. Verse 3 measures the front porch. Verses 5 and 6 describe the chambers that skirted the outside wall of the temple. So you had the temple and then you had three tiers of chambers that looped around the outside. The chambers housed all of the priestly paraphernalia. Verse 7 reveals an interesting point about the construction of the temple. And the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. Isn't that fascinating? In other words, the stones were sized and fitted off-site. There was no hammering. There was no pounding noises going on in the temple. God wanted from the very beginning, even in its construction, he wanted the temple to be a place of peace. He wanted to be a restful, peaceful, worshipful atmosphere. You know, it's not our business. To try to please God through our own efforts and through our own clamor. So, so often we're like the pounding of hammers. And the beating of iron implements. So often we think it's our busyness for God, our clamor that pleases God, but it's not. It's our faith that pleases God. It's our trust. It's not our busyness, it's our restfulness. What pleases God is when he sees us trust in him. When he sees no striving on our part, no pounding on our part. When he sees that we're willing to just kick back and let him do the work in our life. He's the one that's fitting the stones. He's the one that's putting it together. We learn later the only noise heard during the building of the temple were the praise of the Levites. It was certainly a different kind of construction site to walk onto <laughs> than most that we're familiar with today. The outside of the temple was stone. But the inner walls were all paneled with wood overlaid with gold. 
including the Holy of Holies. This was the inner sanctum where God, the presence of God, the glory of God literally dwelt. The Holy of Holies was a 20 cubit cube, 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet high. In the Holy of Holies, Solomon placed two 15 foot tall angels or cherubim made of wood overlaid with gold. And they represented the angels that cover the throne of God there in heaven. All of this was quite impressive. The construction of the temple took seven years to complete. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, the author pauses his discussion on the temple to mention a few of Solomon's other architectural wonders. He also built himself a palace, a vacation home in Lebanon, the hall of pillars and the hall of judgment, or what you might call Jerusalem's courthouse. Solomon also built a house for Pharaoh's daughter, private quarters for his queen. Notice in verse 10, Some of the stones Solomon's builders worked with were eight to ten cubits long. Imagine stones now, 12 to 15 feet in length. Those are huge. We have no idea how those builders manipulated them. It seems that Solomon's engineers were quite sophisticated. We learn, too, in verse 14, that King Hiram was half Jewish which may have been another reason why he was so helpful to Solomon. He lent his expertise in working with bronze, and together they made two bronze pillars that sat on the porch of the temple. Now, these two bronze pillars, they had names. One was Jachin and the other Boaz. Jachin means he shall establish, and Boaz means in him is strength. And the bronze pillars served as a reminder to the priest whenever they walked into the temple or whether they walked out of the temple, that we are established in God's truth and God sends us out in his strength, Jachin and Boaz. Solomon also made the sea of bronze. The tabernacle's version was called the bronze laver. It was a bowl of water in which the priest washed. But in the temple, it was much larger. And that's why it was called a sea rather than just a bowl. It was 15 feet in diameter, seven and a half feet high, and had a circumference of 45 feet. It held 2,000 baths, which was the equivalent of 18,000 gallons of water. And it set, this big, huge sea or bowl set on the back of 12 bronze oxen. Three were facing in each direction. We know from a parallel account of the temple's construction in 2 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 1, that Solomon also built a bronze altar where the sacrifices were offered. And remember, there were two types of cleansing in the temple. The blood cleansed the spirit, whereas the water washed away the dirt from the hands. You know, cleansing today also comes in two types. There is a spiritual or an inner cleansing which takes place when we trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But there's also an outer cleansing, a refreshing of the mind, a purification of the thoughts, which comes when we just run the water of God's word through our thoughts and through our notions of life and preconceptions of life. We need both cleansings. We need the blood to wash away our sin 
But we need the water of God's word to refresh our thoughts and to keep our eyes on Jesus. In addition to the bronze sea, Solomon made 10 more lavers that set on carts. And I love the idea that God's cleansing was on wheels. It reminds me that the Holy Spirit is never far from us when we need a fresh washing and a fresh cleansing of our minds and attitudes. An inventory of all that Hiram made for Solomon appears in verses 40 and 45. And notice in verse 50. The tabernacle's one seven-branch lampstand or golden menorah is replaced in the temple with ten lampstands, five on each side of the holy place. Notice, too, even the candle snuffers and the hinges in the temple were made from pure gold. And according to 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 14, 100,000 talents of gold went into the temple. That is the equivalent of 10 million pounds of gold. At today's prices, the temple would have cost at least... $30 billion. And understand, this is a pretty small building. We're talking about 14,000 square feet. And that's including the outer court. That means the building costs $2 million per square foot. How's that for some premium space? Solomon's temple was no doubt the most costly building ever erected. Now, I'd like for us to pause the tape for a moment. Uh, Several years ago, I picked up some slides. Believe it or not, from Agnes Scott College. There was a guy down there who put together a model of Solomon's temple. And he, he built it, constructed it, and then he made slides of it. And this is a wonderful teaching tool. And everything we've just talked about, we're going to see a model of it up on the overhead, and it's going to give you a visual uh, conception of what we've just studied. So let's take a look. We're going to go through them pretty fast. There are a lot of slides here, and we're just going to take a look and, and a tour here of Solomon's Temple. There she blows. Notice the, whoa, 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 whoa. Notice the bronze sea out in front, and then down in the right-hand corner there is the brazen altar and the two pillars there on the porch. Go ahead, Bill. There's a close-up of the uh, bronze altar. There's the oxen that we just talked about, the bronze oxen in the sea on their backs. There are the two pillars. Remember their names? Jacob and Boaz. In him is strength and he shall establish. Close up. Keep moving. There's a cross section of the holy place. There's the front porch that we talked about. And then there's the holy place. And you can see down at the bottom, the five uh, lampstands on one side. And then there were five lampstands on the other side, ten in all. There's the porch in the, in the far right-hand side. There's the holy place in the middle. And then there's the holy of holies down on the end. 
There's the table of showbread where the bread that the priest prepared were positioned. There to the left was the altar of incense where they burned incense before the Lord. Go, go back, go back just a second. Do you see on the altar of incense, do you see the horns, the four horns on the, the, the table there to the left? See little horns come up on the side? You remember when Adonijah went into the temple, he grabbed the horns from the altar. It wasn't this, it was the altar out in front, but he grabbed those horns and that was the, a plea for mercy. Go ahead. Table of showbread again. Altar of incense. Lamp stands. This were the doors leading into the Holy of Holies. And there were cherubim carved into the doors. These were the angels. And there was an ancient... uh, Drawing of a cherubim. You get the description of the cherubims in Ezekiel chapter 1. Now there's the, the, te- the temple and around the outside of the temple are the chambers where three layers of three levels of chambers where the priests kept their supplies and where they would go for different purposes and reasons. Keep moving. Here's the entranceway into the Holy of Holies. There's looking through the the door. Of course, we'd never see that if we were actually there because the veil there covered the door and only one person could go behind the veil and only once a year. And that was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And do you know what that was that rested in the Holy of Holies? Anybody? The Ark of the Covenant. Man, you guys are, are quick. You're, you're learning. I'm glad you knew that. That's the Ark of the Covenant. And there were the 15 feet tall cherubim. Looking back out through the Holy of Holies. Right. Enjoy that. Give you an idea now what we're talking about. This is uh, this is the temple that Solomon built. And if we had time tonight, we could go through in detail how that each piece of furniture, each dimension, each uh, material, all speaks. Of one person. Jesus Christ. You know the wood overlaid with gold. Jesus was human. Wood. But he was also divine. The gold. He was fully God. Fully man. And we could just go through each element of the, of the temple. And we could point. Of how it all sp- spoke of Jesus Christ. Solomon built this glorious temple. Now. When the construction is finished. It's time for open house. And guess who pays a visit? 
Of course, God himself comes to Solomon's dedication. In chapter 8, Solomon and Israel bring the ark into the newly built temple. And an interesting comment appears in verse 9. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb. Now, you remember Hebrews chapter 9 verse 4 tells us that at one time the ark held three items. The jar of manna, the rod of Aaron that had budded, and the two tablets. But now it only contains the two tablets, the Ten Commandments. What happened to the other two items? Well, we have no idea. But by the days of Solomon, they had disappeared. But look who does appear. God appears. Who needs the rod when you got God? Verses 10 and 11 say, It came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory was so intense that the priests had to shut down, man. They just couldn't handle it. The brilliance, the heaviness, the enormity of God's presence forced all human activity to cease. Everyone had to stand hushed before the glory of the Lord. Verses 14 through 21 record Solomon's dedication speech. Verses 15 through 53 record his dedication prayer. And notice his prayer is four times longer than his speech. He knows that God didn't come to hear him speak. (laughs) He humbles himself and he prays. And what a prayer it is. In verse 22, Solomon lifts up his hands toward heaven and he praises God for being a faithful God, a covenant-keeping God. And I love what he prays in verse 27. Solomon has not lost his perspective. Now, the king has just spent $30 billion and seven years building this temple. But he has known all along that God will never fit in a house made with human hands. You can never confine the God of the universe to a physical structure. And he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. He's got the right perspective. Understand from the earth to the sun is 93 million miles. Let's imagine for a moment that 93 million miles is really just the thickness of a single piece of notebook paper. Single piece of notebook paper, 93 million miles, a distance from the earth to the sun. The nearest star closest to us is 4.5 light years away. Keeping with our analogy, that would equate to a stack of paper 71 feet high. We've gone from a single piece of paper to distance to the sun now to 71 feet high paper. The diameter of our galaxy is 100,000 light years or a stack of paper 310 miles high. And to the edge of the known universe is 10 billion light years or a stack of paper 31 million miles high. 
Now, let's read Isaiah 40, verse 12. Here it is for you. Who has measured heaven with a span? And of course, God has. Now, a span is the distance between a person's thumb and their forefinger. And so what is Isaiah saying? He's saying that God has measured this universe, these 10 million light years. God can fit all of that between his thumb and his forefinger. He can measure that with a span. Hey, you're not going to put a God like that and fit him into a 90 by 30 foot building. No way. Guys, when are we going to learn you can't put God in a box or in a temple for that matter? God is boundless. God doesn't fit into temples made by men, nor is he confined by man-made systems or formulas or traditions. Just about the time you think you've got figured all out about how God works, bang, God will blow out the side of your box. And he will work in a way you would have never expected. God is beyond our ability to hem in or figure out or tuck away. When you're dealing with God, you just got to let him be God. Trust God. Don't ever try to put him into a straitjacket. Solomon doesn't try to put God into a box, but he does ask God to make this temple a point of contact a meeting place between his mercy and humble, repentant sinners. Chapter 8 describes all kinds of scenarios. When people sin, or when they're defeated by the enemy, or when they suffer drought and famine, or even in the case of a foreigner who hears of God's glory and seeks God's face, Solomon asks in verses 44 and 45, when this happens, Lord, when they pray to you toward the city which you have chosen, and toward the temple which I have built in your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. He asks God to let this temple be a point of contact between the power of God and repentant people so that whenever they need him, they can just turn back to this temple and God will hear and answer their prayers. Years later, Daniel will be living in exile far away in Babylon. The temple will be in ruins. It will have been razed to the ground by the Babylonians. But we'll find that three times daily, Daniel will open his windows and he will pray in what direction? Toward Jerusalem and toward the temple. Apparently, he had read Solomon's prayer. Now, what is our point of contact with God? When we are suffering a drought or famine, when we've been defeated by our enemies, when we've sinned and fallen from God, where can we go and always find Him? We can go back to Jesus Christ. He is our temple. He is our point of contact. And if we'll pray in the name of Christ, God will hear 
and forgive our sin and answer our prayer. Now notice in chapter 8, verse 22, Solomon begins his prayer standing before the Lord. But now, at the end of the chapter, in verse 54, he ends his prayer on his knees. Isn't that interesting? The more time you spend before Almighty God, the more humble you become. He starts standing. He ends kneeling. Verse 54 paints a beautiful picture. The world's mightiest and wisest man is seen here on his knees, bowed before the all-wise and almighty God. Solomon could bow before God. I would imagine you can humble your intellect and your pride and your will, and you too could bow before God. In verses 56 through 61, Solomon praises God for his faithfulness. Verse 56 says, There has not failed one word of all his good promise. He asks the Lord to incline our hearts to himself. That's a good prayer to pray today. Solomon states his motive in it all in verse 60. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord our God. And in verses 62 to 66, Solomon closes his dedication ceremony by offering a colossal sacrifice. It was the largest single day slaughter of blood in the history of the temple. On that one day, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep were slaughtered on the altar. Talk about a church barbecue, baby. They had one that day. Now, back in chapter 2, God paid a special visit to Solomon in a dream and granted him wisdom. Now, in chapter 9, God comes to the king again and encourages him to use that wisdom. He warns Solomon in chapter 9. If Solomon and his descendants don't walk in the ways of the Lord, God will see to it. Or if they do walk in the ways of the Lord, God will see to it that an heir sits on the throne of Israel forever. But if Solomon and his sons forsake the Lord and serve false gods, God will cut off Israel. And he will tear down this temple. The temple will honor God one way or the other. Either people will see the temple standing and praise God's glory, or they will see it in ruins and acknowledge God's judgment. But God will be glorified in it one way or the other. The rest of chapter 9 lists more of Solomon's conquests and construction. He built the wall around Jerusalem. He refurbished several cities. And he built up the capital of Jerusalem. And he did it with slave labor, it's interesting. When Israel entered the land, God told them to drive out the Canaanites. But they allowed little pockets of Canaanites to remain. Solomon, though, took over those Canaanite strongholds and turned the Canaanites into a slave labor force to work on his projects. Solomon, in league with Hiram and the Phoenicians, also built a navy at Eloth, which is today Eliot, which is Israel's beach and resort area on the Red Sea. In chapter 10, the Queen of Sheba comes to see Solomon. Jesus mentioned her visit in Matthew chapter 12. As a matter of fact, he used her as an example to the hard-hearted Pharisees. Jesus told them 
The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. In other words, the queen of Sheba so admired Solomon's wisdom that she traveled 1,200 miles to sit at his feet, and yet Jesus was far wiser than Solomon, and the Pharisees refused to listen to him. And he's saying that in the day of judgment, the queen of Sheba will rise up and condemn those Pharisees for their pride and for their hard-heartedness. Sheba is today the country of Yemen on the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. And it must have created quite a stir in Jerusalem when her huge and exotic caravan pulled into town. Verse 1 says that she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Wisdom wars were common in Oriental times. Cerebral showdowns. One wise man would match wits with another wise man and try to trick him in a question. The queen of Sheba wanted to match wits with King Solomon. And according to verse 3, he got the best of her each time. He was a wise man. But he also had extravagant tastes. It seems that David had been a man of simple tastes. But Solomon reigned with all the oriental extravagance of royalty. He lived among stately surroundings. In verse 21, we're told that all Solomon's drinking glasses were made of gold. And he thought nothing of it. Verse 21 says, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. Gold cups to wash your mouthwash out with, no big deal for Solomon. In verse 27, we're told the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. And if you ever get to Jerusalem, you're going to discover that there are stones everywhere. It is a rocky place. And yet in the days of Solomon, silver was as common as stones. Verse 22 says that Solomon even bought exotic pets, monkeys and apes. Solomon's wealth is summed up in verse 23. So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Solomon was the Bill Gates of his day. Verse 5 tells us that when the Queen of Sheba saw Solomon set up, it literally took her breath away. All that she had heard about Solomon was true. She just had to believe it had to see it to believe it and it's interesting she says it's twice what she was told in fact she marvels in verse 7 your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which i heard happy are your men and happy are those your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom in verse 9 the queen of sheba credits solomon's greatness to god she says blessed be the lord your god who delighted in you setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Now, this is God's Old Testament plan of evangelism at work. God's plan in the Old Testament was to so bless Israel 
that all the world would look on Israel's blessing and say, wow, Israel's God must truly be God. Or God was going to so curse Israel for their disobedience that all the world would look on in horror and say, wow, their God must truly be God because their sin is obviously being punished. The point, though, was to either bless or curse Israel to the extent that it would capture the world's attention and focus their thoughts on the glory of God. Israel's God is truly the one and only God. Now, verse 14 presents an intriguing fact. We're told the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 600 and 66 talents of gold. In other words, Solomon's yearly salary was 666 talents of gold. That's a lot of gold. That's about 33 tons worth of gold. He had a pretty good salary. But what's intriguing is the association of Solomon with the number 6 Six, six. It occurs only a couple of times in Scripture. Once here, and once in Revelation 13, verse 18, where we discover that the number of the Antichrist in the last days is 666. This is not the only association, though, between Solomon and 666. Look at verses 19 and 20. Look at Solomon's throne. It was a sight to behold. It was made of ivory, overlaid with gold. But when you approached it, look what you saw. Six lions on one side, six steps down the middle, and six lions on the other side. In other words, when you approached Solomon's throne, you saw six, six, six. It's interesting. Now, all of this comes up before... Solomon sins and slides away from God. But we're about to see that Solomon was a good apple who went bad. He took a terrible fall. He has the infamous distinction of being the culprit who introduces idolatry into Israel. And I'd like to suggest to you that Solomon is, in fact, the perfect type of the Antichrist. David was a man of war. And thus he couldn't build the temple. But Solomon was a man of peace and a temple builder. And that's how the Antichrist will start out, won't he? With a false peace. And he will be the one, no doubt, that will help Israel rebuild their temple. People from all over the world journey to Jerusalem to marvel at Solomon's wisdom. And the Antichrist will likewise impress the world with his incredible wisdom. Solomon was initially a good man. But he ended up falling into idolatry and bringing it home to Israel. The Antichrist will likewise initiate idolatry in Israel. Solomon showed keen business prowess and amassed great wealth. And we learn in Revelation 18, the Antichrist does the same. The parallels between the two men are numerous. Now, in chapter 11, verse 1. Here we find the reason for Solomon's downfall. Here is the banana peel on which he slips. Here is his besetting sin, his Achilles heel. Here is 
Solomon's kryptonite. But King Solomon loved many foreign women. And that's been the downfall of many a man. As well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Wasn't a woman Solomon didn't like, apparently. From the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. God had warned him in advance, warned the people of Israel not to marry these women. But Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines. But look, his wives turned away his heart. Solomon's love for these exotic women turned his heart away from God. His foreign wives, with their pagan religion, became a spider's web that trapped his heart and injected its poison. In order to appease his wives, Solomon turned his back on God. He made ever-increasing compromises, little concessions, to pacify their pagan tastes. And before long, before he realized it maybe, he had introduced full-fledged idolatry into Israel. Hey, just a little compromise here and there, just a little concession now and then begins to add up. Compromise is like a snowball rolling down a hill once it gets started. Extremely difficult to stop. Verse 6 is the sad summary Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. And the Lord was angry. He warned Solomon about this very sin and yet the king refused to take heed. And in verse 11 through 13, God communicates to Solomon his punishment. The kingdom is going to be torn from his son, Rehoboam. And it's going to be split in two. But for Solomon's father's sake, David, the throne will remain in Judah and an heir of David will rule, but over one tribe, over the tribe of Judah. The northern ten tribes will become their own nation and break away from Solomon and they will serve their own king. Really, when you look throughout the scripture, Solomon is one of the most pathetic figures of all. He had so much going for him. He started out so well. And yet he blew it all when he allowed his heart to be drawn away. That's why I warn you tonight. Whatever it is that has the potential, and you know what it is. It's out there right now in your life, but, but it's okay. You're managing it. You're keeping it at distance. But you know it has the potential to draw away your heart, whatever it is, I, I encourage you, get rid of it immediately. It's not worth the risk. Solomon had so much going for him, but he blew it all. And Solomon's troubles begin when God raises up new enemies with old grudges. A couple of men who had rebelled against David, Hadad and Rezan, they had fled from David. But when they hear that David is now dead, they return to hassle Solomon. 
And Rezon begins to stir up trouble in the north, while Hadad stirs up trouble in the south. But the real threat to Solomon's throne comes from a former ally by the name of Jeroboam. One day, Jeroboam meets the prophet Ahiah. They're alone in a field. And Ahiah reveals to Jeroboam God's plan for the kingdom. He takes his new cloak and he tears it into 12 pieces. And then he gives 10 of those pieces to Jeroboam. Ahiah tells him that he will reign over 10 tribes. And God will bless him if he walks in the ways of the Lord. When Solomon hears what's happened, he tries to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam flees to Egypt until the death of Solomon. Which brings us to where we end tonight. We're told that Solomon reigned 40 years in Israel. And then in verse 43, then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. But that other guy, Jeroboam, who's now in Egypt, he'll be back. And we'll study what happens next week.